0: Show
1: you a way. Hi, folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, July the 19th, 2017, and this is episode 2046 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a really interesting one for you today. We're going to talk about cryptocurrency, but we're going to talk about it in a different context than what we've really ever talked about it before. We're going to talk about cryptocurrency in the real world. Who's using it and for what? And to do that, we're going to bring on our guest today, Bailey Rutzel. Bailey actually drove across the entire lower 48 United States, right? And you're going to wait for the joke. There's going to be a point in this interview. I don't know when. I haven't figured it out yet. But just to mess with Bailey, who I'm sure is a great person, I'm going to ask her what she's got against Hawaii, why she didn't drive to Hawaii. And we'll see how she responds to that. But, you know, I understand why she didn't drive to Hawaii. Frankly, I understand why she didn't drive to Alaska, you know, on this thing. Uh, Basically, zigzagging through the United States is enough. But she went to all 48 states to investigate people actually using cryptocurrency and what they're using it for and how it's impacting our society. She's a really awesome person in in, in spite of the fact that I'm going to pull her leg a little bit. Um, She's a very well-known journalist. She's been writing for American Banker, Payment Source, uh, CoinDesk, uh, uh, Digital Transactions, etc., and uh, has a really unique view of things. She actually, I think, is a converted anarchist, converted by the London anarchist scene, which is kind of cool. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about anarchism and voluntarism somewhere in there. But I think this will be good, because this is less about, like, how to mine a Bitcoin, which can be boring, especially if you never plan to mine a bitcoin, and what the impact of crypto really is on the world, how Bitcoin still is the king, uh, what role ethereum might play though in democratizing blockchain beyond currency, because cryptocurrencies had a hard time or, or sorry blockchain technology for all time has had a hard time actually being viable without it being attached to some sort of a cryptocurrency that has some sort of monetary value. So a lot of the concepts like it's going to revolutionize the world, is it? Well, smart contracts might be better at enabling that. We're going to talk to Bailey about all of this and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Bobwell's Nursery has become my go-to for fruit trees, nut trees, and hard-to-find edibles. Their customer service is second to none, and they even provide a 10% discount for all MSB members. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out SafeCastle.com today. And before we get Bailey on, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was. The year that was, we were up to the year 28 this year. Some historical context in our world on a daily basis here on the Survival Podcast. I have Border Disturbances, contributed by David Verne. The Frisii, a German tribe in what is currently the Netherlands, has besieged Flevum, a Roman border town. The governor of Lower Germany gathers an army and drives the Frisii off. After building a series of roads and bridges to transport his soldiers and supplies, he marches across the Rhine and defeats the Frisii. But Roman casualties are high, the reported 1,300 dead. Tiberius and Shinjanus keep the amount secret so as not to alarm the populace. The Frisii sue for peace and managed to avoid conquest by offering a large tribute. My take by David Verne. There was never another loss in Germania on the scale of the Tolberg disaster, but this one was still significant enough to cover up. It might have been that it would have been humiliating for a small nobody tribe to do so well against the Romans, and the Frizi became renowned throughout Germania. My take by Southpaw Ben. It is interesting to note that the Frisians still have a distinct cultural identity today, including unique languages, these peoples are currently part of Germany and Netherlands and have survived as a culture despite being conquered several times in the Middle Ages. That's really kind of interesting to me. I I think maybe the bigger thing here, the reason that you would hide this if you were the emperor of Rome or his lieutenant, is not just your own populace and embarrassment and things like that. Um, They became renowned throughout Germany, which would be Germania right at the time. But it was probably news is slow to travel, things like that. What what you wouldn't want getting out is that this little nobody tribe all by themselves laid a hell of a beating on the strongest and best army in the world. Because what that could do is start the concept of, well, wait a minute. These frenzy guys were not successful. What if we joined with them and what if other joined with us? What if it wasn't just one little tribe? Or what if all of our tribes launched guerrilla warfare attacks all at the same time, coordinated yet uncoordinated, so that there's, we we make them split their forces. See, the worst thing you can have in conflict or empire is for the enemy, the rebel, or the insurrectionist to have hope. Hope is dangerous, no matter how strong you are. No matter how much you feel that you can crush them like a bug in your hand. The reality is, it's never quite that simple. They can always hurt you, and they are most likely to hurt you when they believe that there's a chance. The problem with successes, even when they end in failure, like the Freszi attack on the Roman border town, and their engagement and their taking out of over 13 highly trained troops is, it gives anybody else with the concept of resistance hope. There's a lesson for us, and that's still today. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with Episode 1 and binge out all the way up to Episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. All right, and with that, let's go ahead and get into um, much more about cryptocurrency, like how it's actually being used across, across our own country and maybe even the world. And with that, I want to say, hey, Bailey, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I, I'm excited to have you on. I don't think we've ever approached cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., from this angle, and I, I don't know that anybody else ever really has. I don't know if anybody else has traveled the country to investigate how it's being used and and take a look at its impact on, on on the country and the world as a whole and what it might be doing in the future. So I'm really stoked about that. But before we get into it, I'd like to get people you know kind of in touch with who Bailey is. So. Take us back to, I don't know, 11th, 12th grade in high school. You're sitting in study hall daydreaming or something and trying to figure out what to do with your life, and, and, and how does that lead you to a place where you're, you're doing what you do now?
2: Oh, man. Um, okay, so well, I, I think, you know, it was either late high school or even early college. Um, I went to college in Missouri, just a small school in southeast Missouri, and um, I I was doing speech pathology at first and then decided that I wanted to be able to travel with my job and so the next best thing for me was picking journalism um and I I think it was the right choice for me I mean I get to learn about every um I get to learn about all sorts of different stuff um without having to know you know go through 4 years of college or 8 years of college um so yeah it's It's really good for me. So get out of college, and then I'm still living in Missouri, but I want to sort of move away from Missouri, you know, just like the struggle people have of living in their hometown. Um, And so I moved to Washington, D.C. for a financial technology reporting job. Um, I I really don't know why I did that besides to get out of Missouri. Um, There wasn't, like, a strong burning passion for finance at that time. Um, But as I started writing about the industry – that sort of came about. Um, about six months into that gig, um, I was writing about credit unions and it was pretty interesting, um, but I was focusing on like loan platforms and stuff like that. Um, I I moved to New York for like a payment technology job at American Banker and Payment Source. And I um, Yeah, that's sort of where I first started dabbling into Bitcoin. Um, It was probably late 2012, early 2013. You know, I came across this article on, oh, now, Gawker, I think it was Gawker. Um, And the headline was something like, you can buy any drug imaginable on the Silk Road with Bitcoin. And I just tend to be drawn towards like these gray areas of society or things that are a little bit edgy. Um, So obviously I was intrigued by that. And so I sort of just, you know, kind of stayed with it um, and tried to figure out what it was all about. Uh, when I moved to American Banker, the editor there, Mark Hochstein, is also really interested in Bitcoin. And so me and him sort of were able to kind of talk about it and where that might affect banks or payment companies. Um, we started writing about it. Uh, maybe it was like $16, $9 maybe a coin. And then, you know, from there just like blew up um, and everybody was talking about it, so since then i 've like continuously written about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, blockchain, um, and yeah, like it 's an industry that keeps you in. You cannot get away <laughs>
1: <laughs> excellent so um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is like you know we, we talk a lot about Bitcoin, but it, it seems like mostly people seem to worry about the price, so they 're almost treating Bitcoin like a stock, you, know, you buy uh-huh. it, you trade it, you hold it, et etc. What are some main uses of Bitcoin right now that are actually happening?
2: Yeah, so so really the main use is speculation, if you want to call that a use. Um, so it's it's probably been six months or so since I've talked to Coinbase, but – they were looking at like 70% of their transactions were of the speculative speculatory nature and 30% was maybe to merchants or trading in between friends like, um, P2P. Um, so speculation is definitely the biggest one. Um, and I think, you know, sort of on a tangent here, I, I I think that makes sense because you see such, um, such great volatility, um, such great upswings and huge downswings in the price. Um, And so that's because this is sort of speculatory and this is about money. You know, like a few weeks after Ethereum went up, so it it dropped about 50%, and people were already starting to sell their GPU miners on eBay. It's like that's how quick this industry works. You know, if they're not making money, they get out quick. If they are making money, we get in quick. Um, But so outside of that huge speculation um, use case, the use cases that I've tended to run across are edgy in nature. So we're still seeing like drugs being sold for Bitcoin. Now, granted, they could be legal, but they're in a gray area. So, for instance, Kratom is an example of someone I met on, um, on the road trip. He was selling Kratom for Bitcoin, which is like, um, I don't know if synthetic is the right word, but synthetic or alternate opium. Um, It's now illegal in certain states, but I don't think it's illegal everywhere. So these are like those gray areas I'm talking about where like legality and illegality are like kind of blurred. Um, We see a lot with – again, with even like the the legal marijuana industry in Colorado um, and uh, the Pacific Northwest. And let's see. So – we see these other gray areas or like high risk areas be it gun sales um, be it travel um, what's another one like the adult adult entertainment industry tends to um, tends to flock towards Bitcoin but then the third party companies that these businesses would be using so the coinbase or the bitpays tend to have um, strict policies about these high risk businesses because they are now being seen as the same money transmitting business as any other, you know, traditional business out there. They have to play by those same rules. So for instance, um, my brother owns a guns and armory shop in Missouri. um, And he was thinking about accepting Bitcoin sort of just for like the novelty of it, if you will. Um, But he couldn't find a service provider that would accept him because they're, they're taking like a very conservative view of the industry and who they
1: want to work with. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's, it's – I've noticed that too. And I think like one of the things I've seen Bitcoin being used for in those worlds and in other worlds is anytime two parties are going to do business that maybe they don't have implicit trust – So what I mean is, let's say I want to buy a boat, right, off Craigslist, and the guy wants $6,000 for the boat. He doesn't want a check. I don't blame him, right, because he has no way of validating that check. He wants cash. I have the cash. I'm not going through financing. I have cash. I'm willing to give him the cash. But I'm not real hip on driving to meet some dude at a boat storage facility 40 miles from my house with $6,000 worth of cash in my pocket. Uh-huh. Right. So Bitcoin can be immediately transferred electronically, but like you, you're going to have a lot harder time getting my Bitcoin from me at gunpoint or something like that, you know, if you wanted to shake me down or something like that. And, you know, between here and there, if I have $6,000, I have things like do I get pulled over by the police and why do you have this money or some other attempted at theft? So it, it, it kind of has that bridge in, in the gap too in kind of that two party transaction world that's not a merchant in a typical way, I guess you'd say. Right. So that's something I've seen.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's a niche use case, but it it could be one. There's, like, a couple things that sort of uh, push back against that, and that's, first of all, the reputation of Bitcoin. You know, you... You have to be buying from someone that knows what it is. So, you know, somebody who wants $6,000 cash for a boat is probably not going to get talked into accepting Bitcoin, um, this like weird digital currency without a central intermediary that they don't understand. But I, I agree with you as as the reputation increases and as more and more people get to know it, um, th- that's not a bad use case. Um, and sort of the, the second thing that pushes back on that is okay. So the guy who owns the boat gets six thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, and then typically he's going to want to cash that out, um, which comes with a certain amount of fees. Typically, consumers like aren't super worried with fees on on banking products, or like the fees are sort of like built in, so they don't notice them quite as much. Um, but, like, it is something you have to think about. So now this guy has, I don't know, $5,900 because of the fees of, like, taking out that money via Coinbase or, or some other. I don't – yeah,
1: That's fees a good point because the money. other issue there, right, is, okay, well, right now Coinbase isn't providing any information like that to the IRS, but they are sniffing around looking for it. I think the revised thing for the subpoena was they want any records from 2015, 2016 of individual – Transactions over 20 grand. Well, uh-huh. you know what they're going to do. If they get that, they're going to find people not reporting. And then they're yeah. going to use that as a case for, well, we have to come up with some sort, even if they don't just subpoena the records, you have to have some, you know, just like t- PayPal does a 1099K if you do over a certain amount of business. That they're going to have like a, the same type of trading statement you get from E Trade that goes to the IRS. That's going to be, so then now that's a taxable transaction where if you pay the guy cash, it's you know whatever you write the bill of sale for two hundred fifty bucks. Sure,
2: right, right, so right, that's, right, right. Yeah, that, and that's
1: another you know disadvantage as long as you want to go to cash. So I yeah, really and the got,
2: tax situation is like really strange in Bitcoin right now as well because I mean it's looking it's looked at it like a capital gains or loss, um, and that's on like every
1: transaction.
2: It's quite complicated.
1: It's almost impossible to comply with fully because if I spend um, ten bucks worth of Bitcoin at a restaurant that takes it well, what is my cost basis since I've been accepting Bitcoin for three years? Right. Right? Like, it just it, it seems almost impossible. And then there's a whole debate, and the IRS has not given clarity on, so if I take my Bitcoin and convert it into Ethereum, is that a taxable event? Some say yes, some say no, but they haven't come out with a definitive statement because it certainly appears to like-for-like like exchange. Um, and then how would you know if it was done through ShapeShift or something like that? So there's a lot of weird unknowns there. And I think, in my opinion, it's holding back the full potential of Bitcoin. But I think the way that that ends up getting served, you know, get get we get past that is when people stop wanting to convert it to cash and start seeing it simply as a way to do business. Sure.
2: Yeah. I mean, that I those things would also like help the volatility or even like the people who are um, who think that there's not really a use case. If people were holding it and buying and selling and not cashing out, you know,
1: all of these things would, would make the industry look better. Absolutely, absolutely. So you did something you call money tripping. Talk to us about your experience on the road with money tripping and what the everyday person knows about cryptocurrency and black- blockchain at this point.
2: Okay, yeah. Um, so money tripping was like a, an entrepreneurial project Um, I quit my job in New York and went on a six-month, 48-state drive. I was staying in a a state about three to four days per state. Um, Sometimes that got extended depending on, you know, where I had friends and and where I wanted to stay for longer. Um, You know, there wasn't a a – Um, let's see, how do I want to say this? There wasn't a huge focus when I started. So, like, the idea was that I wanted to cover money um, because I've gotten fascinated in sort of the history of money and how people interact with it. Is it, you know, does it just need to be physical? Is it social? All of these different questions um, were sort of, like, popping up in my head. So I kind of started with that in mind, although it was pretty loose. And, like, at least here in the U.S., like, not many people were thinking that way. So, you know, I'd go into a state and I could ask those questions, but I'd be like, oh, my God, that's the first time somebody's asked me that. Um, so sort of as the road trip continued, um, it became more of like um, like political economy. So um, I would ask people how they felt about money, how they interacted with money, you know, what they spent money on. Um, it was... It was leading up to this last election um, between um, Donald Trump and and Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and and those guys. Um, So it got political pretty fast. Um, Yeah, so it's sort of like the narrative of like what is America through money. But I I did – End up stumbling upon you know some Bitcoin blockchain stuff, not only because of my network, uh, my network tends to be those people, um, but also just because I have you know bitcoin stickers on my car, um, and so people would come up and ask me uh, about bitcoin so in in terms of what I learned you know or what what people know like what everyday people know you know there 's there's these echo chambers in Silicon Valley and New York and maybe a couple other places where everybody knows about Bitcoin and blockchain. But outside of that, um, I mean, it's very little. The reputation of it being sort of a ne- currency for nefarious activity is like still holding strong. Um, you know, they'll be like, oh, that's the currency that was used on the Silk Road or, oh, that's the currency that didn't – it didn't it die? Um, and I think that's related to the Mt. Gox incident. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, like the knowledge is limited. Um, and it's definitely, it's, it, it, it tends to fall into those gray areas that people know about. Um, although I will say that recently, probably in the last three to four months, I've been getting a lot of requests from friends on Facebook, like, you know, friends of friends or like old, like, People I met in college that I hung out with once, like asking me what Bitcoin and blockchain is all about, or asking where they can get good information. So I think, you know, more people are starting to get interested in it and look deeper than just sort of the 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 headlines of crashes and bubbles and
1: drugs. Yeah, definitely. And I think there is a lot of that stigma. In some ways, I think from a speculative point, that's that's a good thing. Um, there's an old story about Joe Kennedy, uh, old man, like you know, old man Kennedy, right? That was made a fortune in the stock market during the depression and, and what have you. And he said he had a moment where he decided to sell all his stock right before the depression. And it was when he was getting a shoe shine, and the shoe shine boy tells him, "Here's a stock tip, Mr. Kennedy." And he said, "Ooh, <laughs> ooh, this is this is bad." So he bailed out, right? He he didn't take that beating, and of course that created opportunity. And I think uh-huh. some people were starting to feel that way about Bitcoin, like everybody's getting into it, but it's still such a small sliver, and one can simply look at the mathematics behind Bitcoin and say, what if one percent of the people in the world wanted to use Bitcoin daily? What would that do to the price as a scarce asset? Uh-huh. And because it's an inflationary model, like it would it would blow it up. And I think some people, because there was a lot of talk and because it did so well in you know this year, uh, Ethereum as well, that people started to feel like maybe they had their Joe Kennedy moment. And I just think it's too small. I mean, my audience of about 150,000 people is probably more informed about this topic than the average American, I would imagine, just yeah. we talk about it at all. And I saw a membership uh, product, and I have about 8,500 members at this point, active members. And I would say less than five percent of my my paying members pay with Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. Which is really, really low, you know, compared to you know the, the knowledge within the market of, of right. my audience. So that's that's one thing. But I guess the other side of it, and what I've always looked at is part of that is I don't think people that are actually informed about Bitcoin really want to spend it right now. They they tend to more like the big traders dump it and and, and buy it back and dump it and buy it back. But the average person that has you know, a few thousand bucks in Bitcoin, they're holding it because they don't want to spend it because unlike their dollars, it keeps going up in value.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I You definitely have long-term holders um, in the Bitcoin space. I mean I have a ton of them on my Facebook group. At, at least they say that they're holding, right? Mm-hmm. I, I can't vouch for that sure. at all. Sure. Um, but, well, like, the people who are getting paid in Bitcoin, for instance, like, they have to transact some out of Bitcoin, I would assume. But, sure. like, for the most part, they're holding. Um, but, yeah, I think you bring up a good a good point. Like, this is such a small industry. Um, the, I talked to... Sean Walsh of Redwood Ventures, um, recently, and he, they're doing a bunch of research because their idea is that Bitcoin needs to be in the hands of like more people to make this industry something, you know, worth a shit. Um, but he, he was saying like, he thinks only 500,000, I think it was, I can look this up, um, cause I have it in my notes still, but I think he said something like 500,000 people own one Bitcoin or more. Hmm and he was like that's not a lot like when you no, <laughs> when you no. think about the grand scale of some of these like payment and banking companies or even like you know the eBay's of the world like they're doing far more than that so like you know what is for for as much hype and as much talk as as bitcoin and blockchain gets like it's still such a small market
1: yeah it is and like i said that's either opportunity or it's it's you know not opportunity if it doesn't ever you know really catch on Right. Um, can you give us some local examples of some things that you saw, you know, throughout your, your uh, money tripping?
2: Yeah. Um, so I mentioned uh, the South Carolina one where some guy was selling kratom for, for Bitcoin. Um, I live in Colorado now, but even, you know, when I was on money tripping, I, I've stumbled across several dispensaries that will sell weed for Bitcoin. I mean, again, it's very niche. Like they'll say they have one person that comes in. Um, let's see what else. I mean, that's, that's really it. You know, I'd even, I would ask people about Bitcoin and they say they would, they they would say, yeah, I've heard of it before, but like the interaction with Bitcoin was like not there. Um, so there's not too many local examples, although, so sorry, I forgot about one. Um, in New Hampshire, New Hampshire is the, the free state um, and has the free state project going on. There's a lot of Bitcoiners there. Um, pr- pretty standard, like just like you would find in Silicon Valley or New York, you have people that are working on projects. So Chris Passia, for example, um, is coding for a, a marketplace that accepts Bitcoin. Um, and then like that whole free state movement sort of you know, obviously the, the Bitcoin ethos and the free state ethos sort of align. So there's a lot of Bitcoiners there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's – I've been working with those guys for, geez, I guess nine years now. So, yeah, they're definitely into anything that enables, you know, greater freedom and, and avoidance of the government system. Uh, right. They're really cool people. Um, personally, I think that, like, the people that tend to accept Bitcoin as payment – Often, our people and I know like some big retailers even will because they're you know have immediate cash conversion set up. But the people that tend to just accept it uh, are people that have a no cash or no capital uh, intensive service. So for me, like for instance, a a membership, right? I don't have to fill an order on the other side to deliver that membership. I have Uh a fixed cost every member is a new additional piece of cash flow the only real cost is any level of customer service so that's easy to accept bitcoin for where if i'm selling a $50 product that i have a $30 hard cost against with a $20 profit if i'm accepting bitcoin i have to go out and, and convert at least 30 bucks of that right cover that even if i want to hold the profit and so web hosting i think like this was the first thing that i saw really you know when i saw you know you could spend bitcoin online back in the day there was like a you know 75 cents of bitcoin was web hosting because that it's it's space, space on a box right um, so it's it's making inroads um what are your thoughts about the, the price volatility as of late? He actually says, what's with what the price increase on your, um, your outline that you submitted to me? But things have changed since then. This was submitted a while ago. We have a pretty long lead time, I guess. And we had big price corrections and then price rebounding with Bitcoin. What are your thoughts on all of that throughout this year?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, this is just the speculation. Um, but I think you will continue to see waves of the hype cycle um like i you know i have told people i've i've been in it for a while so i saw sort of the the payments industry kind of jump and be like oh we could use this for payments and then you know the hype sort of dies down and you see it um with with banking more specifically um or more generally i guess and then we've started to see it like branch out into healthcare and insurance and all these different usually that's more blockchain than bitcoin but you know, they, they sort of play in the same realm. Um, so I think you will continue to see the price increase based on a hype cycle. Um, corrections, I mean, corrections in the market are, are pretty normal, um, but I, I think you'll continue to see those corrections because at least for now, I think Bitcoin is, is overpriced. Um, and like corrections happen because of like news in the world. Like they're not happening because mm, like how do I want to put this? Uh, they're not happening because something is necessarily like wrong with the code. Mm-hmm. But for instance, Ethereum's price fell pretty drastically because there was rumors that Vitalik Buterin had had died, the co uh, the founder of Ethereum. Um so it's like any kind
1: of news – Which was like intentional bullshit, by the way. Like that was done specifically to harm the price of Ethereum, which may have been done by somebody that wanted to buy it, right? Right. I mean that's the right. kind of shit right. going on right now.
2: Right. So I mean and, – and this is the same as like any sort of asset. Like they will – news can change the price of an asset. Um, if it's distributed – across enough people, uh, that shock is less or that downswing is less. But- Somebody
1: finds a thumb in a Coke and Coca-Cola stock tumbles for like 15 minutes. Right, right, right? right. I mean, yeah.
2: Right. So this is all the same. Um, I do think we're going to – so we're coming up on a like a pretty contentious period in Bitcoin's um, cycle here where – Several scaling proposals, um, scaling being like, you know, increasing um, the size of, of blocks or making sure that more people can get on the network. Um, so so there's several scaling proposals coming to a head in the next two weeks. Um, a couple of those, or depending how those interact with each other, could lead to Bitcoin splits, meaning that the, the network would fork and there would be two different blockchains running um, – running a Bitcoin, running Bitcoin that has an asset on it, you know, with two different types of users. Um, In my mind, that will sort of continue to, um, like, uh, push on the price, like push downward on the price,
1: because like not many people know what's going on. I think Uh, it's because a lot of people know what's going on, but they don't know what's going to happen.
2: Right, right, right. Uncertainty.
1: And we saw a big drop in Bitcoin and Ethereum both over the last couple of weeks, um, now we see a pretty big resurgence. And one of the things I think driving that is basically they came out and said like the, the miners are in like 80% agreement on segregated witness, which is one of the ways to solve the scaling issue. So that doesn't look like SegWit will cause a split, but there's still other things that aren't resolved. You know, do they only do SegWit or do they go, you know, with the user activated soft fork and all this other stuff? And like personally, um, I had a really good couple of years with Bitcoin. And I kind of stepped out of the way of this and, and, you know, dumped a bunch of it up at like 2,600 bucks, knowing this was coming. And I'm kind of waiting for like this to flesh out and I'm looking for that big drop um, before people are sure. Uh, And I think a lot of people are doing that. And when people start selling any commodity, it drives the price down.
2: Right, right. Yeah. um, I assume that there will be a drop in the coming weeks. Um, but it, it might also hold till something really drastic happens mm. too. Um, but if definitely, if there's a split, we're going to see like pretty significant impacts on price.
1: Well, you're going to have the whole Ethereum, Ethereum classic thing all over again. it'll, it'll, yeah, it'll take a right. while. Well, which one is going to be the horse that you, you go forward with, you know, in the end that split worked out. Both of those uh, digital assets are worth more today than they were at the time of the split. Right. Um, though I don't have a lot of faith in Ethereum Classic long term myself, because no one's using it for anything. Um, yeah. You know, it really aren't. So, kind of taking a little bit of shift here right now. What momentum are you seeing in the blockchain space? It, it seems to be jumping for financial services, like you mentioned, healthcare, uh-huh. insurance, the Internet of Things. I mean, I see a lot of, lot of great things in the future for blockchain, but I think right now the, the carts in front of the horse, and I. I I, I don't know how old you are, but I was old enough to, you know, have a good job and, and have a lot of money invested and have 401Ks and all those kinds of things in 1998, 1999 and the dot-com bust and all. And I've started kind of – like I look at the, the ICO market and all, and I'm starting to go, man, you know, if you didn't live through that and then Enron and then all the other things that happened in the early 2000s, late 90s, maybe you don't see deja vu here. But, boy, I kind of do. Right. <laughs>
2: Um yeah so you mentioned a couple things there um blockchain space has been a, a bit quiet to be fair um i think i think that will come back um i think that will come back sort of um, if not during but but after sort of this these scaling um proposals you know either make bad things happen or make good things happen. Um, But yeah, especially the like financial services, blockchain space, really quiet. Um, Not seeing a whole lot of movement there, although that doesn't mean that there is no movement. That just means they're, you know, hard at work. Maybe. Um, So yeah, it's, but but I we have seen um, you know proofs of concepts come out in these other industries like you mentioned IoT I was recently at a, a trusted IoT event in San Francisco um, so people are still talking about these things it, at that event there was um, an actual use case so something that was running on a on a live network although it was pretty small um, and that was charging electric cars I believe that was in Germany. Um, so we have seen some, some proofs of concept move out of that stage, out of the experimentation stage and into real life, although they quickly are, like, being pulled back into experiment stage or for, for the, the idea of scaling. Like, okay, now that we've proven that this could happen, we did it with some customers, you know, how do we make this scale? Because um, that really remains, like, a huge concern in this space is that blockchain will, will not scale. Um, but yeah it's other than that it's been like pretty quiet
1: uh, are there any right now commercially available blockchain projects outside of like pilots and proof of concepts type stuff that you do, we can point to or look at or evaluate
2: um like no, <laughs> and I, I wish I wish I could. I don't think that test in Germany is still running live, but it could be. I, you know, if if your uh, listeners are really interested, I could I could get back to you on that because I can't remember what it's called. But it was um, done by uh, Stefan Toole, if I'm saying that right, who did the first Dow and that like the Dow crash and burn kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, so that might help find it, but I, I can like get back to you with the actual name of it. It might still be out in the world, okay. uh, but it was based on Ethereum, like how how to pay for charging stations.
1: Okay. What do you think the roadblocks really are in adopting and utilizing blockchain, kind of separating that from Bitcoin, just blockchain technology okay. as a whole?
2: Um. So again the scale is h- a huge deal. like blockchains are not um, not super efficient. Um, so they work pretty well on s- for certain things like again, if you if you don't have this trust, um, if you're trying to timestamp something and make sure that that you know cannot be changed in, in the future um, but they're not like, they're not super efficient. Uh, Database mechanisms. Um, so yeah, scaling is one. With that, like everything sort of pushes towards scaling or kind of revolves around scaling. You know, I again, I haven't heard much from the sort of financial blockchain space, but they were, you know, they were wondering, they were trying to strip proof of work from the from the blockchain. Okay, well now, how do you how do you make sure um, entries on that blockchain are not are not manipulated if you don't have a proof of work mechanism um, or some kind of proof mechanism. So then they move on to proof of stake. Um, Proof of stake, you know, has issues. There's like, um, there's attacks that can happen on proof of stake. So they're all trying to manipulate this, this proof mechanism um, to make it more efficient. And I, I think that's yet to be seen. Um, Let's see other roadblocks. Um, The, so I haven't heard a lot about this recently, but, but I, but you know, six months ago, this was like my big point is that like these people don't want to share this information that you're asking them to share to make their, their business more efficient. So, um, I'm closest to the banking sector. Um, the, the banking sector is probably not going to want a ledger of public transactions that all their competitors can see. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe the easiest example to highlight this is, so if I move from Bank of America to um, PNC, let's say, PNC is not going to accept Bank of America's like identity check on me. They're going to have me onboard the same as I onboarded with Bank of America, so give us your driver's license and fill out all this information. but. It's hard to see PNC deciding. Oh, Bank of America already did that.
1: Just have Bank of America send that to us. Um, they're not You're getting into you know KYC, there, know your customer, right? So like yeah, they're like we, how do we validate your identity other than to go back to you know we need to know where you live, we need your SSN, we need your state approved ID or you know what have you? Uh, we're not going to just say that since you know since. Bank of America says you're Bailey, that you're really the Bailey that you say that you are.
2: Right. There. I mean, they're completely disincentivized to do that um, because if it turns out that I am not who I say I am, PNC is going to get those huge fines. You know, Bank B gets the huge fines and the the loss of reputation. Where you know, so you could even like if you wanted to be. like, say that there's a conspiracy or that there could be conspiracies afloat. Like, why wouldn't Bank of America just send them bad information so that they could steal their customers? So there's just, like, a lot of um, disincentives for these competitors working together, at least on this.
1: That makes Um, sense. You know, that brings me to something that I've postulated a few times and floated that I think actually would be a use for blockchain technology. So... You look at like Ethereum and smart contracts and you can create your own tokens and whatever. And one thing that these, these systems do really well is if you create a token, and I don't just mean the, the brand name of it, but a specific individual token or whether that's a, an issue token or a mine token or whatever, once that token exists, um, making a copy of it is all but impossible. It is One of the things they did a really good job was prevention of counterfeiting. And so it does stand a reason that someone could create basically what you would call an identity token, and only by having you know the, the the private key to go along with it could that identity token actually represent the individual. And then a use case scenario would be that once the user is identified as who they are, they would be able to use that identification anywhere instantaneously, and then it could also be multi layered like. So if I'm trying to prove my identity for something like, I don't know, playing an online game, there's a very low threshold there. You don't need to know my medical records, et cetera. Uh, Or or actually, even if I really am who I say I'm, just there's a plausibility that this is the guy who says, or online poker or something like that, right? But if I'm trying to open a bank account or, um, you know, there's people taking stabs at what we're calling virtual nations, uh, these could literally become digital passports, So so to me, that's the kind of thing that blockchain actually would be able to do is is solve that, you know, that know your customer standpoint. Because if there was some valid, vetted process that once that token represented you, um, you know, then you don't really need to go through all of this all over again. And that's, you know, that's maybe a 20 year out uh, technology, but it is something that I think has the ability to, to actually harness this thing that we've been gifted with. And do something useful with it
2: yeah um, I people they're definitely working on the identity thing Um, identity is a very tough problem though Um, and so what I see in the identity blockchain space is that there's like kind of a glossing over of exceptions handling Um, so for instance, if you give me this digital passport that is, like, time-stamped, immutable on a blockchain, to, to change anything in that document, um, like, would just add way more bureaucracy than we currently have on identity. And we currently have, like, a ton of bureaucracy around <laughs> identity. So, like, think about how hard it would be, like, um, to, to change my address or, or whatever it might be. Or what if, like... Um, somebody got in who was malicious from the start. Um, then we have this other problem of how do we kick those people off because this is a mutable sort of database. Like, all of these things um, are exceptions that are generally glossed over. Also, the elderly, um, children, uh, people who cannot handle their identities by themselves. So is there, like, a way for someone else to handle the identity for them? Um, Without, you know, them basically giving up their full ident- online
1: identity. What do you do when they die?
2: Yeah, right. So <laughs> these are all, like, things that are sort of glossed over. I don't think it's bad to gloss over them necessarily at this point. Um, but, well, I, you know, I don't know. It just it, it seems like an immature um, – sometimes the arguments can be quite immature because there are these, like, blatant – exceptions that need to sort of be handled before we just start, like, time stamping and making immutable, like,
1: our digital information. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. It makes, it's definitely technological hurdles, but, I mean, there were technological hurdles when we, you know, looked at a rocket that could go a couple hundred feet in the air and said, hey, sure. we'd like to take that to the moon, so. Right, um, right. I
2: also think, just, like, quickly, sorry. Um no, One of the things I think sort of the blockchain and Bitcoin space tends to do is look at problems as if they are – as if they can be fixed technologically. And typically the issues that we have today are social issues. So for instance, like regulation is not – because we don't have the technology to fix what they're regulating. It's generally because there's like a social discrepancy. So when like a woman spills hot coffee on her and gets third-degree burns, you know, McDonald's or, you know, that was sort of the famous example, but whoever it is now needs to put um, contents are hot on that coffee cup. Um, So that's – it's not like – it's not like we don't have the technology to fix that, that situation. It's that socially, not all of us are clear what common sense is, or, or we have different kinds of common sense based on culture and age. Um, yeah. and I, I don't want to say that like, obviously the coffee was hot, don't spill it on yourself because it, it depends on all these things, age, culture, um, race, all of these things change your perception of common sense. um, and so that's sort of why, like, regulation and, exists, because of those social discrepancies and not so much, like,
1: technological hurdles. Okay. Because, I mean, on Common Sense, can you, can you tell me this? Uh, you know, you drove across the United States, went and visited all these states. Why didn't you drive to Hawaii? What do you got against Hawaii, Bailey? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm still trying to get there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> They're not very yeah. Bitcoin friendly out there, by the way. And I don't mean the people, I mean the government. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. I, um, so actually, either I have this um, this um, thing with myself that I'm like, okay, I'm going to get to all 50 states before I'm 30. So I have one and a half year, a year and a half to do that. So yeah, Hawaii and Alaska will be next. And I'll probably just like tack them on to the money tripping blog and try to do some work there.
1: The beauty of internet entrepreneurship is you can kind of stick it to the man and everything that you do in those trips is tax deductible. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that is true. The beauty of yeah. being a blogger is just about anything you buy that you blog about becomes tax deductible. Uh, on that note, like, I want to ask you about some other stuff. So, like, I, I took a look at your site and I looked at your, your, you know, what you're doing and I know that in the world of cryptocurrency, um, a very common theme, theme is voluntarism and anarchism. So I'm checking out your site and I see that you were influenced by the, the anarchist culture of London, yeah. Um, can you tell me what attracted you to that? Because this is, this is a very anarcho-friendly world here at TSB. <laughs> Um. Yeah,
2: I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning. I'm just sort of like attracted and lured, um, lured in by sort of the edges of society. Um, so whether that be people or things, you know, like drug culture is really fascinating to me. Um, and... Uh, adult entertainment, strippers are really fascinating too. It's like all these people who tend to be like ostracized a little bit are interesting. Um, and you know, I think part of that comes from just like, you know, believing that they have a story that you would understand their motivations if you, if you knew their story. Um, but anyway, so like that just kind of drew me into that, 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 Subculture in London. Um, I think Bitcoin and blockchain had a lot to do with that too. Like a lot of these people were are sh- were showing up at Bitcoin events, um, and and I was getting to know them there. Um, yeah, I just I really got along with several of them, and just kind of. So, so there was a point I was staying in a house like way up north um, in London, and then I had to move out like a month before I was going back to the states. So there was like. I went and toured some of the squats that these people were living in. And it was interesting because they had like better groceries than I did. Um, they, you know, they would like wait outside of um pan or like some sandwich shop at the end of the night, they were just throwing away all this bread and they would just, grab it. You know, they would just take it out of, if the dumpster wasn't locked, they would just take all this food out of the, out of the garbage, which wasn't bad. The food wasn't sure. bad. And they would take it to their squat. So I'm like touring the squat, which the, the living conditions, like the sleeping condition, you know, it's not ideal. Um, but their kitchen was like beautiful because it had like every kind of loaf of bread you could ever imagine. And <laughs> you know, all this yogurt and cheese and stuff. And so, yeah, it was interesting.
1: Oh, okay. I'll just let you know there's a whole different anarchist culture in the world, and specifically in the United States, that, you know, we have businesses and we have houses and we have kids. and
2: Yeah, oh, you know, for, we, sure. We, we for look, sure. We
1: look like your average American. Sometimes we look more average than, I guess, the average American. Um, and it, it, it's something you might want to look into as well. I don't know, like, so when you say you're inspired by this, are you just interested in it, or do you, do you consider yourself to have any anarchist tendencies, or, you know?
2: Um. Yeah, I, I would say I have tendencies, but they, like, it, it, the tendency is goes as far as, like, sort of, like, fighting the power, um, right. kind of. Um, so I have gotten really interested, and this was sort of, like, later, um, or this is sort of a pretty new thing of, like, trying to, like, go off the grid. Um, and, and that... And that's only because I'm, like, having these, like, recurring thoughts of, like, you know, who – in Bitcoin, at least a lot, they talk about this right to privacy. But my question is, like, where did that right come from? If we think about where rights come from, you know, it, the Bill of Rights or or the Declaration of Independence, like, all of these things give us a certain amount of rights. But but also that doesn't give us rights. They, they have no control over um, – what we decide is our right? I, I don't know if that's making sense. It's kind of like a circular thing here. Well, but yeah,
1: I mean, from, from my standpoint, things especially when you get into, like, the Declaration of Independence, uh, the rights called out in there were not seen as rights from government, right? Uh, but rights from God. And even if you're an atheist, well, then rights from our creation. Uh, right. Thereby right. The, the, the purpose of the government, I mean, the, the original founding of our government, despite its flaws, was actually quite anarcho in the concept that, it was the duty of government to defend the pre existing right. So the right exists because you exist. Right. Uh, yes. And fundamental to anarchist voluntarist belief is basically that all acts between all humans should be consensual and devoid of coercion and force. Right. And that sounds like a pretty universal human right to me. Uh, and that, you know, if you're going to use force or coercion or anything like that, it should only be in defense. And so to me, like the whole thing is a moral principle. And then the, the big objection people have, the sticking point, and I'm sure you've, you've had this in your life because I did in my life as I kind of walked this journey philosophically over 25 years, starting out as a you know, small government Republican and becoming a libertarian that ran for political office and then finally ending up on, on the full other side of the spectrum is, but how would we? Right? You could fill that blank in with roads and schools and anything else you want to. But if you come back to the principle of morality, that we shouldn't take other people's rightfully gained property, we shouldn't force them to participate in things that, they, that we don't want them to f- participate in, then the, the question of how do we becomes more of a moral imperative that we find an answer to it, rather than we use it as an excuse to continue the process of taking property that belongs to other people, or forcing people to do things that they don't want to do when they're not harming anyone. And so yeah. that's that's kind of where I think the the modern, and I think many people have taken my approach, like... We'll use anarchist when we're talking amongst the choir, but when we're talking to anybody else, we're going to use the word voluntarist because it's not a big yeah. scary word that picks up people throwing bombs at you know archdukes and shit like that, right? Right. If that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I think uh, you have a point. There is no, no doubt that there is a point, but um, with with anarchism and voluntarianism, um, I. I you know, as like maybe a cop-out as this is, I think like a lot of different ways of viewing the world like have points and that if we weren't like so content on like mine is right, like maybe there would be easier ways to get to, you know, I don't know, some idea of utopia that people
1: that people imagine. Um, the,
2: the, yeah, so my – I think the word
1: you're looking for is pragmatism. Yeah, so sure. So that's, that's yes. another thing I think that's very common if you talk to – not the p- person on Facebook that says everybody sucks except me, right? Because the people are so brave with a computer keyboard. But if you yeah. talk to, like, the people that are actually doing something, like, like, say, business owners, entrepreneurs, people that are building farms, building off-grid off off off-grid communities, et cetera, like, there's a pragmatism that goes along with it. Like, this is an ideal that we could have a world devoid of all these things. However, we don't. So now we have to coexist within that and find our own place within it, and be pragmatic in our interactions. And I think the, you know, the anarchist community is made up of like two types, and, and one is that, and then the other is kind of the extreme that you all suck, all cops are thieves, that type of thing. And I don't think that, I don't think that works in our society. And I don't, even though I agree with many of the principles that that group would espouse, it doesn't work. It yeah. so since it doesn't work, we have to stand on the principle before the preference. But then we also have to, you know, I, I, people, say, you're an anarchist, but you pay your taxes. Well, yeah, because I don't want to go to federal prison, right? right <laughs> and I, and I like my life, so I try to live by anarch, anarchist principles. But then I'm pragmatist in what I call the edge of the state. So you have to interact with the edge at certain points. Like, I don't think we should necessarily have to have a driver's license to drive a car. I'm sure there's ways that we can handle that in a free private market, but I'm not going to not have a driver's license out of some holding my breath because I, I don't like jail. You know, I've been once; it wasn't fun. Right? You yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so. It, my anarchism sort of stops at this this idea of like I want to go off the grid. I want to do this thing, and and. You know, I don't want to interact with a lot of other people, which I think highlights like a really great point that anarchism sometimes stalls because we've become such a big nation. Like, in principle, these things are easy with smaller groups of people. Like consensus is easier to get at the smaller it is. Again, sort of going back to Bitcoin and blockchain, as the market has grown, consensus is harder to get. It's very hard to make a huge distributed amount of people agree. Um, and so because our nation has become so big, like not everybody can just decide we're going to do what we want. Like there, there are things that the government has done that then help us do the things that we have to do. Because if I didn't have, like, it, you know, if I didn't have all these things that the, the government has provided, I, I wouldn't have gone on the road trip. Like, you know, my my options become more limited if we don't have, um, like, a public state of of, you know, you could say roads and schools. Like, we need, like, sort of like to level
1: a playing field almost, if that makes sense. You sound like a libertarian on your way to true anarchism. It'll just take a few more years. Most <laughs> like because you're struggling with about how, right? And, and that's just something I've seen. And like I said, I've seen it myself. It was my main objection. And then when we start actually investigating how you find there's there's, there's tons of options You mentioned Bitcoin well, and you consensus and all. Well, that's actually a perfect case for a totally free, open, agorist market. Because if we don't have consensus then you can go do your own thing, and the market in the end is going to decide what the best solution is. Uh And small satellite groups that decide they want to do something totally different, they might have success that, that everybody in the main group, the big majority, considers a failure, but if it works for them and they're not using force and coercion on somebody else, let them be. Yeah, You know, and, yeah. and people, people look at things like, you know, Dash came out and Dash said, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to incentivize actually quality of service on the network by giving some of the mining fees to people that, that do that for instant transactions and enable completely private transactions. And other people said, like Zcash said, well, we don't think that's fair that all, the miners should get all their reward, but then they don't have that secondary mechanism. Well, who's right? Well, I think in the end the market will decide. And it's amazing when people are actually, because if you look at like the whole, not to just roll it back to the internet, the whole way this internet got the way that it is, is because everybody pretty much went out and did everything before the government could figure out how to regulate it. And all of, and, and then there were tremendous failures. And guess what? That's okay. That's okay for people to fail. Like, I think we've got no point where like we don't want to let people fail. But, you know, you talk about you wouldn't have or been able to do what you did without government. I couldn't be where I am without failure. I had yeah. to fail my well, ass off to become successful, and I needed the freedom to fail. Yeah, I do De-
2: definitely. I, I'm a failure kind of person. Like, I'm like, <laughs> it, it, well, quote uh, that's, best that's, quote ever on yeah, failure. Yeah, that sounded weird, but I do think that all your, all your failures, like again, make you who you are. Um, it's just whether you can like bring yourself out of the failure. Some, you know, depending on the way that the. The world is set up. Some people have will struggle more with bringing themselves up, you know, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps than others. Um, and so we want to make that like the idea is to make sure that no, you know, there's not. So for instance, like institutional racism, like will would push down on on African Americans or minorities in a way that it wouldn't. Um, you know, a a Caucasian American like myself. And so the idea is that, you know, if they fail, we're failing two different ways, that one is harder to bring yourself up than the other after that failure. Does
1: that make sense? Yeah, we're not going to go there because we're (laughs) we're close to the end here and we're getting into the whole white privilege discussion and that won't go well, I can tell. So um, (laughs) we'll, we'll let that be because in my view, in the end, like everything we've done to try to fix that actually made it worse. Like, except with the exception of like the Civil Rights Act, which had to happen because government created the dispersion in the first place by making it making it law. So that was like government fixing its own screw up. But when if you take that piece out of it, if you look at black America, they were better off in nineteen forty than they are today. Everything we've done to help has screwed that up and Their communities are not as strong as they used to be. They don't have anywhere near the level of entrepreneurs that they used to have. Um, They have far less of a a solid family central unit, and frankly, we all do. And that's every time the state says, ooh, there's a problem, we're going to fix it. To me, the only times I've actually seen it get any better, and I will concede stuff like the Civil Rights Act did that, they made the problem. They created the problem. Because I would say this today. You want to put your business out of, out of business? I got a great plan for you. Get a sign that says no blacks, no no whites, no anything, no gays, whatever. Stick it in your window. And the market will fix your ass way quicker than the government will because society has evolved.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. We don't have to go down
1: the rabbit hole
2: necessarily.
1: <laughs> right. uh, Let's do something um, better. Let's talk about your blog, right? Moneytripping.com. What's that all about?
2: Um, yeah, so money tripping was just the, the 48 state drive blog that I did. So there's, um, there is a post for every state, um, mostly, you know, focusing on money and politics a little bit. And then, um, you know, I will update it every once in a while. I haven't really kept up with it very much, mainly because I'm trying to get the money tripping book together. Um, so the money tripping book is basically that blog and then mixed in with my personal narrative. Um, I, I had mentioned before, it's like sort of the story of America, like what, you know, what's its issue and what is not its issue, um, kind of.
1: Okay. So, so that kind of – yeah. is that the future for you then? Is that what you're working on now? Like the next thing for, for you is this book?
2: Yes, that is what I'm working on. Um, so I'm in the process of editing the first draft. I need to find an agent and a publisher, and all these things that are like I have no idea how to do, and um, <laughs> are very challenging, at least for anyone that I've talked to that has gone, um, that has written a book. So, yeah, you know, I'm looking forward towards like the end of the year as maybe we can. That's
1: cool. We can have something, but who knows? I'm going to give you a little professional advice on that. Um, I'm going to suggest highly that you consider self publishing and self promotion. And I'll make a commitment to you that if you want more on that, I will put you in touch with several people that are members of this audience and community who have done that and have done very well with it. Okay. Because what I've seen in the publishing industry is unless you are, you know, um, a Brad Thor or something like that. That you don't get much more for giving them such a big piece. That they don't actually do that much. Uh, they may give you a lot more help with you know editing and things like that. But in the end, once your book's there and put out, I mean, I think authors are misled into the belief that like you know they're going to really work hard to push your book, and they basically say right. go push your book. Um, I know one couple in particular that put together a book that they run through a self-publishing platform. And they make, you know, easy six figures a year off that one book. Now, they've done a lot of work with continuing, as we're strafed by the Air Force here, they know I'm giving away valuable information. Oh, oh okay. Right? I don't know if you can hear yeah. the Jets, but they strafe me every once in a while. Um, but, but you know, they're doing that, and they've been doing that for years, Now they've made updated versions of it and stuff like that. But to me, like, the, you know, you talk about blockchain, distributed technologies and stuff, these technologies like CreateSpace and Lulu have enabled authors to have a freedom from that gatekeeper environment and, and many self-publishing authors, another guy that writes under the, uh, the, the, the pen name of Glenn Tate to protect his actual identity, uh, they did a 299 Days book series. He did everything through there, and he's done very well, you know, top level on many things on Amazon.com, uh, bestsellers list and things like that, uh, all self-published. So that's something I would say that any author should really look at because, again, unless you are the big name – they don't generally do very much to, uh, to, to really help you.
2: Right, yeah. I, I have talked to a couple people about self, self-publishing.
1: That's sort of in the back of my mind, so I would love some context there. Cool. We'll do that for you. Anyway, I want to thank you for being with us today, Bailey. It was a really great interview. I learned a lot, and I appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, that was a great interview, really interesting, and a unique take on cryptocurrency and its impact on our society and our lives and the potential future of that as well. I think Bailey, somebody will probably have back on the show again sometime in the future. Anyway, with that, let's talk about our YouTube channel of the day. This is a, a pretty cool one. This one was sent in by Scott. Scott says, here's a good YouTube channel about entrepreneurship. And the uh, YouTube creator is Patrick Bet David. And Bet David is a hyphenated last name, B-E-T hyphenated David. Okay. And uh, so I was like, you know, I, I, just because you send me one, guys, doesn't mean I'm definitely going to use it. But entrepreneurship, I like that. Well, I I looked this guy up, and he has a 90-second piece on the life of an entrepreneur, what it is to be an entrepreneur, and what people don't see. Rather than me tell you why I love this channel, I'd like to play that audio from that video for you right now. Here you
0: go. Most people only pay attention to the final product of a successful entrepreneur. They say things like, I can never be like them, or they got lucky. What most don't see is what they've overcome. All the struggles, the daily rejections, the heartaches, the betrayals, the rumors, the criticism, the empty bank account, and all those lonely nights while trying to make their vision a reality. You see, the only difference between the one who quits and the one who doesn't that they showed up every day. They worked hard every day. They hustled every day. They learned from a proven mentor every day. They improved every day. They did all this even though they felt like quitting every day. And eventually, they became who they are today.
1: All right, and I'm going to tell you when I listened to that, the hair on my arm stood up a little bit. Not because it made me believe I can do more, but it is the story of what I had to do to get where I am in life. It's the truth. It's the truth. And I think that little 90-second video, while designed to encourage those of you who are trying to build that entrepreneurial lifestyle, may actually be more impactful on people who have. Because that's exactly what it is. And it doesn't matter if you're building a multi-million dollar concern or a lifestyle business. It doesn't matter. It takes the same amount of dedication and effort and a willingness to continue to do things when everybody around you says, why don't you just go get a job again? Or why don't you just focus on your job so that you can do better there? Or why do you have to make your life so harder? No one's going to want to do that, or that's not going to work, or I I don't think it can work, or what have you. The world has two types of people in it. Two, people that are content with the way things are, and people that want to work hard to make things better. Let me tell you something, folks. Entrepreneurs make things better. Even if we just focus on it makes it better for them themselves, people who are happier in their lives have better contributions to society. They do. They do because they're the people that are more generous. When you have more, you give more. And there is no entrepreneur, I believe, who has truly been successful that hasn't inspired, even without knowing it, at least one or two or three other entrepreneurs to become entrepreneurs. That's what drives people To go out and build something of their own. They look at someone and say, hey, if that person can do it, I can do it. And something is built inside them in that one second. It might be 10 years of work before it's fully realized. But something happens in that one second. The first time they look at something, instead of saying, well, maybe I could do a business. When they actually look at somebody and say, if they can do it, I can do it. Or they come up with a concept and say, I can do that. When it goes from maybe or possibly or it'd be nice to I can, if they can, I can. If that person can, I can. If that idea will work, my idea will work. Belief, faith. That's the seed that's planted, faith. And is that faith that drives a successful entrepreneur? And is that faith that drives many successful people in many successful walks in life? Hold on to that thought till the end. Because I also want to remind you here at the end of today's show that you can always help support the Survival Podcast. When you're going to shop online, by doing what? Just go to tspaz.com first whenever you're going to shop online. From there, you can get on over to Amazon and check out their deals of the day and stuff like that. And anytime you shop on uh, online through tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. It's really that simple, and it's very easy. I also have items of the day that I review for you. And today's item of the day... Is Matisse Galego sardines and olive oil. I know that doesn't sound like a prepper item, sardines and all. Okay, how about an item that you buy in 20, 2017 with an expiration date of 2022 on it that has a good source of fat and high quality protein? Oh, now it's a prepper item, isn't it? Because that's one of the things you struggle most with in your preps, I would imagine. High quality fats and high quality proteins. And when, you, when you're when you looking at Matisse Gallego, you're not just looking at high-quality olive oil, which it is, but you're also looking at the fish oil. Let me tell you something about sardines. They're low on the food chain. They eat mostly plankton. Now, what does that mean? That means that they don't um, have the problem of basically tracking up and uh, additional levels of mercury and other contaminants in the food chain. And what I mean by that is, let's say you're eating swordfish. Well, a swordfish eats a predator fish that probably eats a smaller predator fish that eats something like a sardine. So we, we have something there that we use a big fancy word to describe biomagnification. So it's a persistent toxin. The little fish that eats some mercury has mercury in it. Now, the bigger fish eats a whole bunch of fish it will have a little bit of mercury. And all of that mercury now concentrates in that larger fish. And then the next bigger fish eats that fish and eats many of those fish. And we start magnifying the level of mercury and other toxins in the fish. Now listen, I like tuna, I like swordfish, all right, I like mahi, and and I eat that fish. And I'm not going to quit eating it because our body can deal with some level of toxins. But the other side of nutrition is most people do not get enough omega-3s in their diet. And cold water, high oil fish is the best natural source of omega-3s there is. But we should be eating that three or four times a week to get a good balance between omega-6 and omega-3s. We probably shouldn't be eating tuna and swordfish three or four or more times a week. But we can eat these guys two or three times a week, and maybe we eat swordfish once every other week or something like that, or tuna every other week, something like that. Then our body has time to process those toxins out. Because if we couldn't process toxins, we'd all be dead. So these are healthy. And then the other thing about this, if you just hate sardines, don't buy these. Just don't. They're not magic. They're sardines. But if you kind of like, I could take them or leave them, they're okay. These are the best I've ever had. A 10 of these, instead of like, you know, 15 little tiny smelt-looking things in there, there's like three because they're big and they're plump, skin on, bone in, gutted head off, right? So there's no guts, there's no head, but you got the bone in. The bones just crumble, so, you get the, the, the nutrition in that part of the fish as well. And these are fantastic. One of my favorite ways to eat them, I just chop them up a little bit, make some avocado mash, basically a guacamole type thing. Take a big lettuce leaf, drop, you know, the the busted up pieces or just eating the whole fish in it, and a little bit of avocado on it, a little salt and pepper, roll that lettuce leaf around it. I'll have two or three of those for lunch. Man, it's freaking good. High quality nutrition. Again, it builds out that protein and fat part of your. Your Preparedness Pantry as well. And very easy to follow the credo with. Eat what you store and store what you eat. Check them out today. And again, these things are um, fished off the coast of Spain and Portugal, where the best sardines in the world come from. The the way I found these, just so you know, because this guy's really into sardines. I am. I'm a freaking sardine connoisseur. I go back to being a little kid sitting on my grandfather's knee when I was like three years old, eating sardines on, on saltines with him. The cheap ones, right? And I even like those. So when I was like, man, I, sardines haven't been in my life for a while, I kind of let that go. And uh, I, I was like, well, I wonder what the best sardine is. I went and I I scoured the Internet reading reviews of people that actually, you know, food bloggers who went out and tried all the sardines. And there was one name that came up, number one or number two, on everybody's list, Matisse Gallego. So check them out, Matisse Gallego, sardines, high quality. and You know what the ingredients are? The ingredients in, in the can of Matisse Gallego sardines sardines salt olive oil that's it that's what you're looking for not soybean oil not canola oil not some multi-syllable thing that you can't pronounce sardines olive oil salt that's what you're looking for in a sardine and remember again anytime you shop at tspaz.com online you can help support the work that we do here at the survival podcast that brings me to my song of the day And again, it is if John Adam has some kind of foreknowledge of what I'm going to cover um, that I don't even have. Because when I decided to start doing the YouTube channels of the day, I decided that I would put out some of my own and then just start start taking recommendations from you guys. If you want to recommend a YouTube channel, send it to me. I require that the the producer have at least 1,000 subscribers. That's not not that high of of a level. And I'll take a look at it. And I'm just doing them in order. And then occasionally throwing one of on my own in. So it's like today, I just pick the next one in line. And it's the one that I gave you with the 92nd piece by The Entrepreneur and all, and, I, and it led me to faith. Faith is the difference in those that succeed and those who don't. Guess what the heck today's song is called? It's called Got to Have Faith. And no, it's not by wham, right? got have it. No, that's not. No, we're not we're not playing that on our show. That's not a that is not quality music in my opinion. That is pop bubblegum crap. Uh, this is by the band Europe. And it is a fantastic song. I'll let the lyrics speak first. So I won't do any analysis of the lyrics for you today, other than this is about that level of determination. It's not even about determination. It's kind of about getting to the point where I just don't give a shit. I'm just going to do it. You know, all these things that I in the past that you knew me as being maybe afraid to try, I'm just doing them now, and I don't give a damn. You got to have faith to make that happen. That's a perfect fit for today's show. Well done, John. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
0: i Get the